Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. Here's what we read. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Tonight we come to Noah and his sons, having now come out of the ark and begun their life in the new world. Um, all of humanity is composed of these uh, four men and their wives. And each and every human being alive today is descended from Noah through one of these sons. Uh, we need to remember when we are studying this that we are studying the book of Genesis, which in and of itself is part of a, a larger book. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, these five books together were originally part of one book. Uh, in the rest of the scriptures, it's called the book of Moses or the book of the law. Um, today, the Jews know it as the, uh, the Torah, which, stand, which means the law. Um, others call it the Pentateuch. Everybody say Pentateuch, which just literally means the five-part book or the five books and together Genesis to Deuteronomy make up this one book the book of Moses now this book of Moses was given to Israel as they are about to enter the promised land the promised land is the land of the Canaanites which is why we see a stress in this passage on Canaan Moses' life was at an end. Joshua is about to lead the people into Canaan, into the promised land. Uh, God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham. Uh, God comes to Abraham in Genesis 15 and shows him the land. And he tells Abraham, your descendants is one, are one day going to have this land, possess this land of the Canaanites. And God is very clear to Moses and to Joshua. Israel is to drive out the Canaanites. Israel is not to show them mercy. Israel is to be used by God, to be wielded by God as a means of His judgment against the peoples of Canaan because of their great wickedness and their great sin. Uh, Israel was not to allow Canaan, uh, Canaanites to stay on the land. They are certainly not to intermarry 
with the Canaanites. They are certainly not to be influenced by the pagan ways of the Canaanites. And so this passage is particularly important because it reveals a moment in history long before there were Canaanites when Noah prophetically curses Canaan, his grandson, from whom the Canaanites will come. Uh, Moreover, he blesses Shem, from whom the Israelites, and ultimately Jesus, will come. And so what we see happening here in this strange passage, in this uh, unusual passage, what we see happening here is Noah pronouncing a curse and a blessing that is ultimately fitting into God's sovereign plan for the outworking of history. Uh, What I want to do first is draw our attention to uh, the sin of Noah. Before we look at the sin of Ham, let's look at the sin of Noah, because uh, all through this study of the last few weeks, Noah has been the great hero. And yet here we find Noah acting in a very unheroic way. We're told that he's become a farmer. He has planted a vineyard and he has enjoyed the fruits of his labor and he has enjoyed it too much. He has become drunk and in his drunkenness he has begun to act in a shameful way. He exposes himself in his tent Um, Now, there are a lot of things that we can learn from Noah's sin here. Uh, One of the first things we see is that this shows that Noah, uh, though Noah was a godly man, uh, he was not perfect. Um, We've said it before, the the best of men are still men at best. And though Noah is called righteous and godly and blameless in his generation, we must not think, oh, Noah's the Messiah. Noah's the one who was promised. Noah's the sin. No, this... Act, among others, reveals to us that though Noah was a godly man, he was in need of a Savior just like us. He was not the Messiah who was to come. Jesus was still to be waited on. We also learn here uh, the same truth that Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Uh, Matthew Henry reminds us that the best of men cannot stand upright unless they depend upon divine grace and are upheld thereby. Uh, Though Noah was a a righteous and godly man, uh, he um, fell into sin. Pride uh, often comes before a fall. And you and I, we must never think that we have reached some mountaintop of godliness and have somehow grown to such a place in our spiritual lives where we're no longer susceptible to falling. I assure you, the moment you have that thought, you're falling. (laughs) The fall has already begun. The backsliding is taking place. Uh, Rather, the more we grow in Christ, the more we ought to realize just how badly we need God's grace every single moment of every single day. Uh, For whatever reason, Noah acted very unwisely here. Uh, He drank too much, and it led him into even greater sin. Uh, one truth, then, that we definitely see here is that drunkenness it can cause godly people to do very ungodly things. Uh, drunkenness causes men and women to lose their inhibitions and to act improperly, sometimes often with their bodies. Uh, later in Genesis, Lot's daughters, remember Lot is called a, a righteous man, but Lot's daughters will get him drunk in order to commit incest with him. 
Um, the Bible calls us to be sober-minded because we're in a battle with, with the flesh. We're in a battle with Satan. We're in a battle with the, the, the world around us. And so we need to be sharp. And yet, uh, becoming drunk does just the opposite of that, doesn't it? It causes us not to be sober-minded, not to be sharp and thinking. Drunkenness impairs us so that we make foolish decisions. The Bible calls us to practice self-control. When impure thoughts or ideas come into our minds, we're to, we're to put them away like, as if they're poisonous, because they are, spiritually. Even the godliest of people will occasionally have sinful thoughts. But those who have grown in Christ have, will learn how to turn away from these, th these thoughts and how to, to certainly not to speak them, certainly not to act upon them. But the moment that thought comes into your mind, you, you, you repent of it and get rid of it and put it away and try and squash it. It's called self-control. But when we become drunk, our ability to control ourselves is impaired. And suddenly things that we never thought would come out of our mouths comes out of our mouths. And thoughts that we would never have acted upon but would have thrown away from us when we are drunk. We're willing to act upon them and to do things we should never do. And often we can do great harm to ourselves and to other people often those we love the most. Um, the Bible has quite a bit to say about wine, um, and it's not all negative. The Bible says some, some positive things about wine. Uh, wine was to be offered at the altar to God as a drink offering. And we're told that this sacrifice of wine to Him was a pleasing aroma to the Lord, Numbers 15, 5 through 10. Uh, God actually instructed His people in Deuteronomy 14, 26 to enjoy wine and strong drink in the promised land and to rejoice before Him. Psalm 104, 15, the psalmist praises God for creating wine to gladden the heart of men. And wine had a significant role in the life of Jesus, not only because Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine, but also because ultimately He chose wine as a symbol of His own blood to be drank by his followers as an act of worship. The Bible also speaks quite a bit about the dangers of wine. Proverbs 21, 17 says that he who loves wine will not be rich. Now, I think what that verse is pointing to is the fact that often those who love wine, uh, often they become alcoholics, and uh, what happens is they'll end up spending money that needs to go elsewhere. They'll end up wasting it on, on drink. And uh, Proverbs 23, 20 through 21, teaches the exact same thing. Listen to this. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. In other words, if you like wine too much, it will lead you to ruin. Um, now by the way, don't miss in that verse that liking food too much can also lead you to ruin. Um, some of us in here may not drink alcohol, but we really like food. And uh, the Bible says that if we're not careful, we can end up wasting way too much of our money on expensive and extravagant foods and restaurants uh, when we as wise stewards ought to be putting that money and that, that, those resources elsewhere. Um, Proverbs 23, 29 through 35 is probably the, the passage that speaks 
most in the scriptures about an inappropriate affection or love for wine. So just listen as I read for you Proverbs 23, 29 through 35. It's a really striking passage of scripture. Uh, Listen to this. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? It is those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try the mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things. Talking about when you're drunk, right? Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies down on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Pretty clear, I think, uh, in that passage that wine, uh, as as well as other uh, alcoholic drinks, can become addictive and can lead to drunkenness. And when that happens, it leads us into even greater and worse sins. Too much drink will not only hurt you physically, but it can do great evil to your soul and to others. And I think Noah's story here is an example of that to us, of the dangers of drunkenness. Now, why was the fact that Noah was naked such a big deal? Well, first of all, when we read that he was in his tent, we probably shouldn't think of his tent as if this was his private bedroom. Uh, Nor should you think of his tent as being some sort of a a, a camping tent. Uh, Rather, uh, Noah's tent was his house. It was his dwelling place, probably quite large, probably a place where other people, uh, at least certainly his family members, his sons and uh, daughter-in-laws, would come in and come out. And so if if this is right, then in his drunkenness, Noah was exposing himself uh, in a semi-public place where others, such as his son Ham, would come in and see him. Um, The Hebrew phrase here can be translated either in the passive or the active form. The ESV translates it in the passive. He, he lay uncovered. Um, but many think that, that it should be translated in what's really the most often way this, this kind of phrase is translated, in the active voice, which would literally mean he exposed himself. And that seems to be what's happening here. In his drunkenness, he exposed himself in a time and place where he certainly should not have been doing such a thing. And thus Noah had become intoxicated He had lost his self-control, he had lost his sober-mindedness, and the result was that he was acting in a shameful and in a disgraceful way. Now, there's warnings there for us, but this passage isn't really concerned so much with the sin of Noah. The point of the passage has to do with how his sons responded to to his sin. And so we come to the sin of Ham. Um, Ham comes in on his father and sees him there naked and comes out and tells his brothers, and this is related to us as being a very wicked thing. 
Um, now, we might could imagine Ham stumbling in and, and seeing his father and immediately turning away and going and telling his brothers, brothers, this, uh, our, our father's in a shameful state. We need to do something. You know, help me cover him up. But, but we learn here that he was not acting in a righteous way. <laughs> there was something sinful. There was something wicked about what Ham does here. And so uh, what precisely is it that Ham did that was so bad and uh, there's a number of possibilities, and it could be that he did one of these. It's more likely that he did several of these. Um, first, uh, it is possible that Ham here committed the sin of voyeurism. That is, he looked upon his father in an immoral way. Uh, verse 22 simply says that Ham saw the nakedness of his father um, but many scholars, both ancient and modern, have taken this to mean that Ham was, was leering at his father, was looking upon his father in uh, an impure way. It's possible. I, we can't prove it. We don't know, but uh, it's possible. Second, uh, Ham may have taken delight in his heart at seeing his father's indignity. Um, the fact that he, he went and told his brothers rather than covering his father up seems to show that Ham took some kind of pleasure in seeing his father in this shameful condition. Uh, he, he may have gone outside and, and joked to his brothers about how their father looked inside the tent. And I think a question for us would be this. Do you and I take pleasure in seeing other people act foolishly? Is there something in our hearts that delights when we see people make foolish decisions? Or even worse, do we ever take pleasure when we see those around us who we consider godly or righteous fall? The reason I ask that is we live in a society where many often love to hear about the latest Christian leader who got caught up in some kind of a scandal. There seems to be um, something about hearing about some godly person that fell, that for many it brings delight to their hearts. I don't know if it's because when the godliest around us fall, it just makes us feel better about our own sin. Um, maybe we say, see, my, my sin isn't so bad. So-and-so got caught doing something worse. And you know how people revered that person for, for his or her godliness. And so if that person fails, see, my sin's not so bad. Or maybe we use the fall of others as, a, as an excuse for us to keep holding on to those sins that we love. See, so-and-so fell. Doesn't that just show that, look, if that person who, is, who we all thought was so godly, if that person fell, I don't have a chance. Why even try? should just hold on to my sins. Now, we probably would never speak that with our mouths, but maybe in our hearts we're using, what we, we take glee in seeing others around us fall because it gives us reason to hold on to our own secret or sins that we treasure. It is very, church, listen to this, it is very, very wicked to take delight in the sins of another person. It's very wicked. If we love someone, if you love someone, then you should want to see them live in holiness. It is, it is holy living that shows that they are right with God. It is holy living that will ultimately lead to their happiness. The wages of sin is what? If you love someone, you don't want to see them in death, especially spiritual death. 
It is very unloving to delight in someone else's sin. Now I say that, how often do we turn on the TV screen and laugh at people committing sins? We're entertained by it. We should not be. Moreover, if we love God, who is all good, how can we say we love God and His character and at the same time enjoy seeing behaviors that are contrary to that? How can we love the opposite of that which describes God? Our God never acts without self-control. Our God never acts in a, uh, in a foolish or reckless way. He is always sober-minded. These things ought to bring delight to our hearts because they are good. They are a part of God's beauty. And therefore, when we see the opposite of that in another person, it ought to concern us, not delight us. And so if you ever sense in your heart a delight and seeing the sins of another person, you would do well to, to get to a private place and to preach to your soul, to repent of that feeling, to pray that God would take it away from you, to squash it immediately, give it no room to fester in your soul. Its root is pride, and it will lead you to fall as well. Um, a third type of sin that Ham seems to possibly be committing here uh, is the sin of needlessly sharing information with others that demeans someone else. Um, we, we just can't know for sure, but it seems very likely that Ham did not have to go outside and tell his brothers about what was happening with Noah. Uh, he could have just immediately covered his father up himself and left the whole episode there. But rather, by going outside and sharing this information with his brothers, he is dishonoring his father in their eyes. He is putting a, an obstacle in the way of them showing respect and reverence for their father. He is defaming his father. Now, friends, there are times, there are times when in order to be biblically faithful, we have to share information about the sins of others. But we ought to only do that when it is needful and necessary for their good, for the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. When we can avoid it, we ought not to share with others information about the sins of others around us. It is, it is defamation. It is unloving. I, I wonder if you have ever been guilty of sharing information that hurt the reputation of someone else when you simply didn't have to share it. Are you guilty of that? I know I probably am. I think if we think about it, we probably all are at some point in our lives. The Bible teaches us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Would we want others to tell information about our sin to other people? I am willing to guess that there are sins that you have committed and that I have committed that we would be ashamed for others to be passing around as information. And yet, about our own sins, we, we want to keep them quiet, we want to keep them secret, but when we hear about the sins of others, for some reason we treat those with so much more recklessness. That's not loving others the way we love ourselves. Moreover, when we share with others, especially when we're gossiping, and we're sharing with others the, the sin of so-and-so over here, we usually do so not in a, in a loving way. Our brother so-and-so is caught up in this sin. 
We really need to pray for them. We need to make sure we're, we're not caught up in that same sin. That's not the way we usually do it. In fact, usually we do it in such a way that we're the judge and the jury. We're so much better. Can you believe what so-and-so got caught doing? Oh. Right? As if we're so much better. As if we have some inherent holiness. James 4.11 Do not speak evil against one another. We need to heed that. We take that to heart. A fourth sin that Ham seems to possibly be committing here was simply choosing not to right the wrong. Uh, he sees this shameful scene. He, he comes in on this disgraceful uh, episode of, of Noah there in his nakedness, and he could have immediately probably done something about it. He could have gone and gotten a blanket and covered his father up, but, but he did not do that. Rather than righting the wrong, he, he left it there and went and told his brothers. Notice how his brothers responded. What did they do when they heard about Noah? They went and got a blanket and covered him up. And Noah is going to bless them for that. Noah is going to, to say in this blessing, it certainly gives the impression, you did the loving thing. You did the wise thing. You did the right thing. You have honored me by this deed. But Ham did not. He chose to leave his father in this shameful position. Similarly, when, when we at some point in our lives come across someone who is, who is called in a sin uh, or is in a, in, a, in a bad situation and we have means to help set that right, we have some uh, ability to come in and help that situation, we ought to do so. We ought to do what we can to help others, even when the messes they are in are a result of their own foolish choices. We don't want to take away their responsibility for their sins. But we ought, to be able, we ought to do what we can to help right the wrongs. Now, this is doubly true when the person is a family member. It's true when it's a brother and sister in Christ and someone you've committed yourself to. Well, finally, uh, whatever we might say about those others, I think it is undoubtedly true that Ham is here breaking the fifth commandment. He is dishonoring his father with his actions. It is God who gives our parents to us. And the way we treat our parents reflects our reverence for God. If we love God, then whether we have good parents or bad parents, for His sake, we are to treat them with respect and reverence and with honor. Ham did just the opposite. He acted in a way that showed a lack of respect for his father. The very... I mean, some of us might say, yeah, Dustin, but you don't know my, my parents. You don't know how hard it is to, to respect my parents. And I would say to you, look, God gave you the parents you have. He knew what he was doing. He's doing something good through them in your life. Even if they're just teaching you patience. Even if they're just teaching you how to learn how to forgive. Whatever God's doing, he gave them to you for a reason. Respect them, honor them. But Ham, he did not have an awful father. His father was the only father in all of planet Earth that got his soul saved during the flood. His neck should, he should be dead now. The only reason he's alive in Genesis 9 is his father. And yet he's treating his father with such contempt, with such disrespect. Well, let's look at how Noah responds with this curse and blessing. 
Uh, Let me read it first, beginning in verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be Yahweh, or the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Deuteronomy 27.16 says, Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother. In this passage, Noah pronounces a curse as a response to Ham's sin. Um, A curse is the opposite of a blessing. We've talked a lot about blessings in Genesis because we've already seen blessings several times. Uh, A blessing is when God pronounces a blessing, it is Him saying to someone or something, I am going to give you fruitfulness. It might be physical fruitfulness. It might be material fruitfulness. It might be spiritual fruitfulness. When a human blesses someone, it is a call for God to bring fruitfulness into someone's life. Well, a curse is just the opposite. What Noah here is doing is calling for God to to put a a block on prosperity and fruitfulness in the life of Canaan. Uh, He's doing this uh, as an act of response to what Ham has done. Here, Noah's curse on Canaan is a desire that Canaan should not rule over his brothers, but rather that Canaan would be a servant to them. Now, hopefully you see the issue here. Ham committed the sin, and Noah responds not by cursing Ham directly. Who is the curse directed towards? Anyone? Canaan, right? It is directed towards Canaan. Why? Why Canaan? And yes, Ham is, I'm sorry, Canaan is Ham's fourth and youngest Son. Well, we cannot know exactly, obviously, what was going through Noah's mind that that would cause him to direct his curse towards his grandson, towards Canaan, but it probably did have something to do with the fact that Canaan is Ham's youngest son and Ham is Noah's youngest son. We always say uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so you might think, well, Ham's the middle son. But no, we learn later Ham is the youngest son of Noah. And so it seems that that just as Noah's youngest son had brought disgrace to him, now Ham is going to be disgraced by his own youngest son, Canaan. Uh, In other words, Ham is going to reap what he sowed. Um, Sometimes we'll we'll, we'll say what goes around comes around. And this curse is is a prophetic word that uh, what Ham has dished out is going to return to him. Noah is speaking prophetically here. Ultimately, God is at work bringing Noah to pronounce what Noah pronounces. And Canaan's descendants, the descendants of Canaan, will become a people who are characterized by immorality. They're going to become a people who will be, uh, in a sense, the arch enemy of Israel, of God's people. Meanwhile, while this curse is placed on Canaan because of the sinful act of his Father, Shem and Japheth are blessed. In fact, it's from Shem that God's people Israel will come. And it's interesting that that when Noah blesses Shem, he actually doesn't bless Shem. Who does he bless? 
Verse 26. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. And he takes not just God, but he takes the name of God, Yahweh, and associates it with, in particular, Shem. And so there's a prophetic word here that at least seems to be foreshadowing, at least seems to be hinting that it's going to be through Shem's line that the overall people of God, the nation of Israel, and ultimately Messiah, Jesus, is going to come. In verse 27, uh, Noah more or less calls on God to put the descendants of his sons into an order of favor. Japheth shall dwell in the tents of Shem, meaning that, that, that Noah's desire is that Shem's descendants will be the most blessed, those who receive the favor of God and are most powerful. And then Japheth is to, to have the secondary spot. And then Canaan, there's no other word here about the rest of the descendants of Ham, it just says Canaan shall be the servant of them all. Now, we need to address here an issue of how this passage has been dealt with um, in the past, especially because of where we live. In decades past, these verses were often used by white Christians as biblical evidence to support the enslavement of blacks, and then later, the segregation of blacks. I'll give you an example. 1889, editorial in a newspaper. It argued that as long as whites and blacks live together, the blacks must occupy the position of inferiority, for, quote, Ham must be subservient to Japheth. The assumption is that blacks come from Ham and that white Anglos come from Japheth. And since this verse says that uh, Canaan is to be the servant of Japheth, then it is biblically right that blacks be subservient to whites. That was the argument. Now, before we address that, you need to understand that this argument was not just a rare thing. It was very widespread. Very godly men, um, men who otherwise we would look up to as wonderful preachers of the word, taught that interpretation of this passage. Um, A.W. Pink, godly man. His book on the attributes of God, wonderful. Read the book. I mean, the attributes of God is a fantastic book by A.W. Pink. He taught this interpretation of this passage. Some of the best commentaries that are still widely used today by pastors that are great commentaries when it comes to this passage, they hold that interpretation of this passage. In fact, sometimes I think we wonder how our uh, white Christian forefathers who loved God, who loved Jesus, who, who took the Bible seriously, how could they own slaves? How could they treat blacks as being something inferior well, it was because of misinterpretations of passages like this that they did so with a, with a clean conscience. It was a blind spot in their understanding of the Bible. I genuinely believe that treating blacks as subservient to whites was a part of God's will. Um, the argument will not stand. That is not a good interpretation of this passage. First and foremost, because as we have seen, Noah's curse is not on Ham. 
it's on Canaan. And the descendants of Canaan were not Africans. The descendants of Canaan were the Canaanites, who were Middle Easterners, who had much more in common with the Jews ethnically than with the inhabitants of Africa. Moreover, through the rest of Scripture, we never find blacks being regarded as being cursed by God to be subservient to others. We, we never find that. In fact, Moses, the person who wrote this passage down, married a black woman. And when Miriam becomes angry at Moses for this, and we're not exactly sure what was behind Miriam being angry at Moses for this, but, but when Miriam became angry at Moses for marrying this foreign black woman, God strikes Miriam with leprosy and makes her skin as white as snow. It's almost as if God was saying, if you think only light-skinned people are acceptable, then I will give you really light skin." And if God had not cured her, her light skin would have been the death of her. Sometimes we who are white like to read the Bible as though everybody in the Bible looked just like us. As if everybody in the Bible was like us. When the truth is, uh, for those of us who are Anglos, Anglos have no prominent role in the Bible at all. Practically every person that you read about in the Bible had darker skin than most of us in this room. And so if we hold to some crazy view of a person's value or worth being determined by how light their skin is, well, then you're lifting yourself above Noah and David and Moses and Abraham and Peter and Paul and Jesus. But it's simply not biblically true. So, if the curse on Canaan is not about skin color, and it certainly is not, nor is it about uh, Africans, well then what does this curse mean? Well, for Israel, who's receiving this as they're about to go into the promised land to fight the descendants of Canaan, this curse that they read here is a reminder to them that God is going to give them the victory. God had promised to Noah here that the descendants of Canaan would be the servants and subservient to the descendants of Shem. And so for the Israelites who are reading this passage, it is encouragement. Let's go into Canaan. God is going to give us the victory. Not only do they have Genesis 9, they have Genesis 15, where God takes Abraham into the land and shows him all of it and says, it's all going to be given to you. And so this was a word of encouragement, of comfort, of, of boldness. That's how it would have struck the Israelites who received it. What does it mean for us? What does this blessing and curse mean for us today? Well, first, I think we can take from this that our God is trustworthy and will keep His promises. God promised that the Canaanites would be subservient to Shem, and sure enough, the Israelites, the descendants of Shem, come into Israel and are able, more or less, to uh, rid the Canaanites from the land. Not completely, and they sin in much of this, but in a sense the prophecy does come true, and God does fulfill His word that was spoken to Abraham. Uh, Joshua is absolutely clear about that. In the book of Joshua it says, everything that God had promised to Abraham, He did, came true. 
And so we, reading this, knowing the whole story, can look at this and say, here is an example in the Bible of our God keeping His Word. And I don't know about you, or about you but I, I do know for me, I like to hear that my God keeps His Word. I mean, I'm kind of stake, uh, staking everything on that, aren't you? I mean, heaven and hell, eternal life. I mean, we're staking all of it on, on this one assumption that our God can be believed. If our God proves to be a deceiver, we're done for, folks. We're in a world of trouble. So it is great to see in the Bible that our God keeps His word and that He is faithful, that He is trustworthy. To those of us who have turned to Him for forgiveness, it is great to, to know He will keep His promise. He will bring us safely into His presence. Our God can be counted on. Second, looking at this story, knowing the whole story, we can take from this passage that God's mercy is great enough to save people from any and every people group, no matter how wicked their culture or how pagan their background. Why do I say that? Here are the Canaanites. They are the enemies of Israel. The descendants of Canaan would be the very opposite of everything that God called Israel to be. The Canaanites would sacrifice their children to their idols. They were sexually immoral. They were idolaters. They were practicers of black magic. We learned that they worshipped demons. Surely, if there was ever a group of people that ought to be cursed and ought to receive no mercy, it was the Canaanites. And yet, Jesus had Canaanite blood flowing through His veins. Because God in His grace saved some of the Canaanites who turned to Him and found forgiveness. You ever heard of Rahab? Not just a Canaanite, a Canaanite prostitute. This curse had been pronounced against her people. But she turned to the Lord. She came to be counted among God's people, and ultimately she found a place in the genealogy of the Messiah himself. This is a reminder to us. That, think about it this way. God had a curse on the Canaanites. So also, God has pronounced a curse on wicked humanity. A day of judgment is coming. But even while all humanity is under this curse... Anyone who turns to the Lord and repents will find that his arms are open wide with mercy and with grace and with forgiveness. That's a good thought, isn't it? It's great to hear. And I think it's one of the truths that we can take from this passage. So Mount Hermon, let us remember tonight, first, our God is trustworthy. And second, His mercy is available to everyone, no matter what family what we come from or what heritage we bear. Are there any questions about things that were preached on this morning or uh, this
this evening that you would like to ask before we close? Uh, do you have any questions that you would like to, uh, to, to raise or uh, any comments you want to add before we close tonight?